Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You know, to see this happy-go-lucky teenage boy and to know then what happened to him afterwards, it's, it's kind of haunting as well. The last time he, he could be heard or seen was when he was leaving the front door. He shouted back to his grandmother and just said, cheerio, goodbye, and no one heard or seen him since. And he'd planned to meet one of his friends en route back to school, um, but he never made it. He never made it back. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was the boy who never came home, the teenager whose innocent face has haunted generations of Irish parents. Now the disappearance of schoolboy Philip Kearns 35 years ago is the subject of a new book which firmly turns the attention on a paedophile DJ and his peculiar underground bunker buried in a field in West Dublin. Today, I'm talking to journalist and author Emma McMenemy, who has forensically examined the missing person files and spoken to retired investigators who have spent decades looking for answers. She tells me about the strange appearance of Philip's school bag days after he disappeared, about the false leads pursued in the case, about the witness who placed child abuser Eamon Cook at the centre of the probe, and about the forensic expert who believes Gardaí need to search his secret lair. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Emma, the boy who never came home, like that photograph on the front of the book of Philip Kearns is, it sort of seems timeless, even though he is trapped in time in that photograph. But for me, it's like as if that photograph could have been taken yesterday. There's something about him and the image that it doesn't look dated. It doesn't look dated, but it's also when you know the context of it now or look back on it, it's Mm. actually quite haunting, you know, to see this happy-go-lucky teenage boy and to know then what happened to him afterwards, you know, or or what's perceived to have happened. Um, it's, It's... Kind of haunting as well. But the haircut and everything and all, you know, the clothes and the uniform and the ties on straight and everything. It's a real, he was loved. You can see that. Oh, he was was very loved. And Mm. even, you know, his family even 
up to up to now, you know, you, you could get a sense that he was an extremely loved child and loved his family, loved spending time with his family, which a lot of teenagers wouldn't no. want to be spending time with their, their parents, you know, but he actually loved family mm. life, was very well behaved, was settling in well to school. He was only seven weeks in Kloshtaina. Into when first he, year. Yeah, when yeah. he went missing. So he was he was actually adjusting very well from yeah. going from primary school. It's a real transition period for kids' lives to go from that primary school to the secondary. So 1986 will set the scene and he was 13 years of age. And the biggest story that happened that year, undoubtedly, and anybody who was around at the time will just remember it because it was absolutely stunning that a child could go missing. He was on his way back to school, actually. He'd come home for lunch. Is that right? Yeah, he'd come home for lunch. It was kind of a regular routine for him where he'd come home. He'd have about half an hour by the time he'd make the journey back. And it was 10 minutes each way. And uh, his sister was at home because she was due to go into the dental hospital because she'd had a toothache that was getting persistently worse. So his mother, Alice, was getting ready to bring her into the dental hospital. So he just sat finishing his homework, had some lunch and was looking out the window. And at about one twenty, he uh, the last time he, he could be heard or seen was when he was leaving the front door. He shouted back to his grandmother, who was staying with the family at the time, and just said, cheerio, mm. goodbye. And no one heard or seen him since. So how far away was the school from the house, which was in Rathfarnham, is that right? Yeah, it was close to Aina, so it was about 10 minutes walk away. Mm. Um, it would have been a very kind of regular route that a lot of school kids would have made at the time. And he'd planned to meet one of his friends uh, en route back to school and they'd kind of join together and mm. carry on the remainder of the journey. Um, but he never made it. Mm. He never made it back. And it was when he didn't come back from school after four o'clock or whatever was the regular time that the family alerted the guard. Yeah, it wasn't even that. His his father, uh, Phil Senior, it was only when the mother came home, Alice from the dental hospital, that she said, look, Philip, you could nearly set your clock by him. You know, mm. he's, he's so on time. There's something not right here. Uh, I think the father kind of maybe assumed that he was playing football with some of his new friends from secondary school and that he was just a bit delayed. But I think the mother instinct kicked in and she kind of could tell that there was something not sitting right. Mm. So she kind of went to all his known friends in the area to check in. And they actually told her he never actually came back to school that afternoon. Okay. And that's when the real panic set in then. So did they go to the guards that night, the family, or did they try and look for him themselves? Um, thankfully, Enda Cloak, who was one of um, Philip's best friends, his father was a guard. Right. And he rang around to Ratfarnham Garda Station to report him missing. And within a few hours then, there was a huge hunt on where local neighbours, like the family, were very much well-respected mm. in the area and liked. So everybody came out to try and help them find Philip. So they searched local football fields, laneways, you name it. But there was there was no sign of him. And by the next day, was that when it was on the news? Like, were we, you know what I mean? I can just remember it coming on the news that this yeah, schoolboy was Yeah, it's a weird one because it was a bank holiday. And right. back then, newspapers didn't come, up, come out on a bank holiday Monday. So it was nearly the Tuesday. So they had a full weekend of panic and trying to get the message out there. They had to wait until, right. the, until the Tuesday's paper, really, before... It became national news. Because, of course, there was no social media. There was no internet. 
you know, mobile phones were only were they in at all? They probably weren't. No, and no, they like were just even in development. Even now, like you know yourself, being a journalist, that if a child goes missing or if there's a guard alert, it's on social media within five minutes. Yeah. Whereas back then, it was a matter of photocopying black and white pictures of Philip and putting them up in the local shop and local business windows. Mm. I think I, one of the family members even went to the extent of getting his photo on the side of milk bottles at the time. Right. But it was it was a very slow process. So by the time it became national news, it was mm. a huge story. But clearly his mother knew instantly there was something wrong when he hadn't gone back to school and had missed his dinner. Um, did the... The guards took it as seriously, I presume, very quickly as well. Yeah, they could tell from what his mother Alice <clears throat> was saying that like he was a very well-behaved boy. He wasn't out of character on the day he disappeared. Um, there was nothing to kind of merit him, you know, running away or having a teenage tantrum. There was nothing at all to suggest any of that. So I think his mother instantly knew that there was something wrong and was able to convey that to the guards. Mm. And they did take it very seriously. You know, any of the detectives who I spoke to who would have worked on the case, they said it was one of the biggest hunts that they were ever involved in. Mm. You know, every resource, there was there was guards and detectives called in from stations all over Dublin to help with this, you know. Um, so I think it was taken very seriously at the time. And what was the mindset? Like, what were the suspicions or what would they have thought? They, I mean... They clearly didn't think he'd run away. Was was it initially thought he, you know, been some accident that maybe he'd fallen into a local river or something like that? Was that the thinking, or were they quick to jump to the conclusion that my goodness, he could have been abducted? There was a, there was a few kind of uh, speculations at the time. Like there was extremely outlandish ones, like that he was kidnapped or had run away with a religious sect. Which, remember that one, actually. Which when you think back, you know, it's a lot of people kind of focused on the fact that the family were religious. But if you put it into context, it was 1986. Ireland at large was a very religious country. You know, there weren't many households that didn't go to mass on a Sunday. Um, you know, and I suppose there was that avenue which was quickly kind of ruled out. Like they, they did take a few calls from members of the public who... We're obviously trying to feed false information where they were saying that he'd been abducted by mm. religious cults down in Limerick, that he was about to be sacrificed or worshipped to the devil. You know, totally outlandish things. But in the 1980s, for some reason, we were obsessed with religious cults in I this think country. So. And yeah. terrified of them. We were absolutely terrified of religious cults, which weren't cults at all. They were just a different religion to the usual ones. Yeah. And also Satan worship was a big thing in the 1980s. And not just in Ireland, actually, there was an obsession with it in Germany and other countries. It was a peculiarity. I think maybe we were just so, you know, close minded, you know, as a community that we didn't think it was OK to have different beliefs. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, and actually, funny enough, I remember that being terrified that this religious cult had taken, because I was a child at the time, had taken Philip Kearns, but I digress slightly. Um, sorry, so there was a couple of theories, but was the, the thoughts of that he could have been snatched by a paedophile? I mean, he's an age of a boy that it's not so easy to bundle a 13-year-old maybe into a van, is it? Mm, I see. You see, I suppose one of the things that a lot of the, de the former detectives who worked on the case who I spoke to, they're of the belief that it was perhaps someone that Philip recognised or knew 
or could have been seen as like a pillar of society or a public figure um, who he felt comfortable mm. about getting into the car with or he felt obliged. You have to remember he was a very well-behaved boy. So if he was asked to do something, it would be very hard for him to say no, mm-hmm. you know. So, and also then you have to take into account there was no screams heard, no one witnessed an altercation where he was where they witnessed him being dragged into a car. So all these things for a lot of the detectives who worked on the case would point at the fact that maybe, not not certainly, but maybe it was someone that he knew mm-hmm. or recognised and felt obliged to get into their car. But um, I think they kind of ruled out pretty quickly that he hadn't absconded and run away. He, yeah. he just wasn't the, the kind of, yeah, yeah he, he never got into trouble. He was very well behaved and, it was totally out of character, like, for him to disappear. So I noticed from your book that the concentration was obviously trying to trace, trying to, you know, go back to the last steps and get eyewitnesses to see how far he'd got. And also they went into the school to question fellow pupils to see, was there anything kind of going on in the background or did any of his friends know anything? Yeah, like it was, they were off on holidays at the time because it was midterm. It was the the October midterm. And so they called all the students back into the school on the day. I think it was the 29th of October. And there was 18 detectives and each detective was accompanied by a counsellor at the time so that they could interview the children individually. And um, they got a few leads, like there was a few kind of stories at the time that maybe he was being bullied or, but it it all transpired not to be true. Mm. And the interesting thing that led from that, though, was that his school bag, uh, which had been missing, obviously with him, um, suddenly reemerged that evening. Uh, So that was how many days after he went missing? That would have been about six days after he'd been Reported missing. Okay. And the night after they'd been into the school? Th- that day. That day. He'd, they'd been in to interview his class and a few staff members at the school that, that day. And that evening by seven o'clock, two friends, Catherine Hassett and Orla O'Carroll, uh, when they were walking through the laneway, which was a very busy laneway, led to the church. It was a shortcut used to go to the church and the shops. Um, they discovered it by a lamppost. Now, the strange thing is it had been raining all afternoon. And when they picked up the bag, it was bone dry, which led them and officers at the time to believe that it had only recently been left there. Mm. Hadn't been there for hours and, you know, nobody had noticed it. It, it was literally only after being left there. Yeah, because it would have had to sit there for six days had it gone missing at the same and time. And they had searched. And yeah, they had searched, searched the laneway really well. Mm-hmm. So There was a few items missing from the bag or so they believed. Yeah, like there was, there was a lot of kind of spec, you know, reporting at the time that the religion... The religion book was missing. Um, and I think that led, that fed into the whole religious cult kind of thing. But I suppose what a lot of media outlets at the time perhaps forgot was that his geography book was also missing, you know, which would probably not be as good a story as the religion book being missing. Um, yeah. And basically what happens is I, I had, I, I chatted to Catherine Hassett for the first time, actually, in mm. 35 years, one of the girls who discovered it. And she said they nearly actually bypassed it because they're on their way to their friend Amy's house. And uh, it was only because the whole Philip Kearns case was going around the area and there was a lot of talk about it that they said, we better pick it up just in case, you know. And uh, Catherine said to her friend Orla, pick that up and and have a look and just check and make sure it's not that missing schoolboy Philip's. And when she picked it up, she said, um, no, no, it's not Philip's. It's someone with a C. And it was only then that Catherine said, no, uh, Orla, they actually spell Kearns with a C, not with a K. Right. 
And with that, they grabbed the bag and they went to Raffarnham Garda Station then. And the mystery of that bag remains to this day. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the weirdest things. Like it's um, it's the only evidence in the case. Um, and I believe, and a lot of the officers, I suppose, that I spoke to believe that it could potentially hold the key to one day solving the case <clears throat> because the person who took Philip, if that is in fact what happened, their DNA could be on the satchel. Mm. Um, now, in 2016, when a prolific paedophile by the name of Eamon Cook came into the picture, they did test his DNA against the samples on the bag. But what must be considered is that the FSI, the Forensic Science Ireland, they only have the ability to test single profiles in Ireland, like in most crime labs around the world. They concluded that his DNA was not on the bag. They were not able to check, because they haven't got the ability, for mixed DNA. So basically what that means, if I have a glass of water and I, I touch it, and I only I touch it, that's my DNA that's on it. If you come along and touch the same glass, that's now mixed DNA. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very hard to actually lift a single profile from. But I, I spoke to a, a doctor, a world-renowned DNA expert in the States, and he said he actually has the capacity to now lift single profiles from mixed DNA. Mm-hmm. And what he stated to me was, just because Cook's DNA wasn't in the single profiles, it's not necessarily true that it's not within the mixed DNA. Mm-hmm. So, and that could be a breakthrough. Yeah, in the and case. he said he's willing if the the guards and the FSI send all he needs is like an electronic file sent from the FSI. Right, that he'd be more than happy to examine it, um, and he could have the results back within a week. The developments in DNA are just phenomenal, and they're really going to solve so many of these cases. You look at the the Kerry Babies case at the moment, and and so many others. Um, it's fascinating and it's a really is a science that has just transformed the world of investigators. When you think DNA didn't even exist when Philip disappeared, it exactly. would have been fingerprints and the like, you know. How things have changed. We'll come on to Eamon Cook shortly because he is such a central character in your book and in this story. But go back again to, I suppose we're up to a week after he disappears. His bag has shown up. This is obviously a new angle for the story and for the emerging, for the for the news media. This The bag becomes the story, essentially. So who left it in the laneway? The weeks must go into months and the family are still there and I'm sure the story dies away. See, the, the sad thing, I suppose, about it was um, the guards, within an hour of discovering the bag or being informed of it, they notified the family. And the family were, from from what I can make out, were very confident that this could actually lead to Philip coming home. Um, even Catherine Hassett, one of the girls who found the bag, said, you know, she was she was delighted when they came across because they were like, you know, the Kearns family will will now get their little boy home, which wasn't the case. Um, no, there was one or two witnesses who came forward saying that they saw a tall, skinny man in the area at the time holding a bag. Uh, There was a few of these kind of sightings, but none of them ever transpired to be true or they could never get any concrete Mm. evidence on them. Um, But yeah, the the days went into weeks and, you know, I suppose the hope for the family kind of slowly dwindled. Dwindles, yeah. yeah. And I suppose we mentioned there as well that not only was there not DNA, 
social media, internet, but there wasn't really much CCTV either. So anybody could have come along without being traced nowadays. You no can't go CCTV, anywhere. No CCTV. And then you have to remember as well, because DNA didn't exist, the bag would have been handled by numerous mm. people without gloves on. Mm. Um, like, you know, up until I think 1998, his school bag was literally left in a cupboard in Raffernham Garda Station. It wasn't in an evidence bag. Um, you know, none of this existed. So how many people handled it between that day, even and 1998? Mm. So what happens? And, you know, presumably the, the, the guards who are investigating it, look, it's not as if anybody forgot about Philip Kearns. We, to this day, haven't forgotten about him. But... The story and his his disappearance must come in peaks and troughs from a point of view of hopes uh, for the family. Do you know is what happens in the kind of the months and up, I suppose, to the first year after he he goes missing. Yeah, I, he, the family never gave up hope, and they never shied away from media appeals. Even around Christmas of that year, there was an interview with his mother Alice, and she said that he was in such good form at the time of his disappearance that they'd even discussed what he wanted for Christmas. So that wasn't the mindset of someone who's going to run away. Um, I suppose they they constantly hoped, they even appealed, you know, to anybody who may have taken Philip to find it in their heart to to bring him back, that they weren't going to hold it against the individual. They, they just wanted their boy home. But the week slowly went into months and the months slowly went into years. But it's one of those cases that has never shied away from the, the papers ever. Mm. You know, um, even during my research, there wasn't one year where there wasn't a single mention of Philip or an appeal by his family. Be it Not an anniversary year. or whatever. Anniversary mm. or if there was a slight development in the case, if the guards received phone calls or if there was a dig being carried out. It's constantly been in the media for the last 35 years. So what have been the big kind of moments that the the team maybe thought this was a breakthrough? What, what were they, what information were they digging as a result of or what sort of theories came forward or people came forward claiming to have knowledge of what happened? Yeah, there's been a few of them. Um, I suppose the one that they probably got their, their hopes on was there was a teenage boy who was arrested in Scotland and uh, when he was being interviewed, he claimed that his name was Philip Kearns. Now, he's had a similar kind of appearance to Philip um, and the, the Scottish police got in touch with the guards to say, look, we've got this teenage boy, but he's claiming to be Philip Kearns, who I believe is missing in Ireland. So they got their hopes up two detectives flew over to Glasgow only to discover this kid was actually from uh, Ballymun. He was a runaway. He wasn't Philip Kearns. I think that was one of the, back then, that would have been one of the biggest kind of where they got their hopes up. Mm. They believed it was him. Uh, there was another one then back in 2009 where they carried out a dig in a golf course in Raffarnham after being given it seemed very credible information at the time. Now, there was uh, disturbances to the soil, but when they carried out the dig, there was nothing there. Mm. So, you know, it's it's been kind of constant up and downs for not just the guards, but for the family, you know, where they're, they're getting their hopes up and then, unfortunately, nothing comes of it. You know? And uh, clairvoyance? Oh, they had uh, detective, former detective Sergeant Tom Doyle was telling me that like the way he looked at it was he had to interview everybody and listen to everybody's uh, 
opinion and information because what he feared was that someone who may have been involved in Philip's disappearance might have been coming into the station to talk to him to see what they had, you know, and to figure out where the investigation stood. So he ha- he actually had to take every person as they came at face value. So he said he had tea leaf, uh, leaf readers, he had clairvoyance, he had people who were claiming that they saw uh, Philip in the bottom of Blessington Lake talking to him, like just mm. really obscure kind of And uh, these cases, the longer they go on, they seem to draw in every class of humanity to them, don't yeah. they? Yeah, but they've had like people from America and other countries as well ringing, saying, claiming that they are Philip. Right. You know, so it's 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 one of those kind of cases that has never died off you know it's always there and the photograph of him obviously then was that science that they can make you grow older or whatever that photograph was released and that was a what he would have looked like as a a 21 a 21 yeah. was it yeah so I suppose that was bittersweet as well for the family because very hard unfortunately they never got to see him grow old so mm. you know when they saw that image of him it was kind of um in an, a vision of what he may have looked like mm. which must have been absolutely heartbreaking so now moving it along to um, 2016 and we have to describe what happened here but then we'll have to go back. But in 2016, somebody came forward to the police and suggested the name Eamon Cook who was at that point in prison or certainly in, in well, he was in, incarcerated by the state for a number of sexual assaults. Uh, Cook was a DJ known as the Cookie Monster. Cookie Monster, the Irish Jimmy Savile. Like the Irish was, Jimmy Savile. Extreme. What you to what you to remember as well about even in 1986 in Ireland, radio played a huge part. I know nowadays it's mm. uh, Netflix and it's you know different various kind of online streaming services, but back then, pirate radio station really was the thing. Um, you know, RT used to play kind of middle fair kind of music, whereas the pirate stations would play all the popular music, you know, that they were the totally part of, to of to. youth culture, weren't they? Yeah, at that so, point. So he was in 1986, Cook was, sorry, before 2016, when somebody put his name forward with, with a piece of information that we'll talk about. But had he ever come up as a person of interest? in the investigation into Philip Kearns because presumably they did look at sex offenders that were living in the area and in the region and he was not yeah. that far away from Philip. Yeah, they were very thorough in fairness. Um, like during the course of writing this book, I didn't just look at Cook as a possible suspect. I looked at numerous individuals, but they would have um, looked at all criminals, paedophiles, um, people who had a history of sexual violence not just in the area, but in Dublin and even at, lar- you know, the larger area. Um, and Cook would have been on their radar, but there was nothing that they could tie mm-hmm. to Philip. You know, yes, he was a prolific paedophile. He actually hadn't been charged at that stage. You know, when he was kind of in the f- in the frame or when they were looking at him, he wouldn't have been even in that context of being a, a person of interest. Yeah, because the thing about Cook was he got away with it for years, decades he got he got away with he he's very like Jimmy Savile in a lot of respects as in he was a very public figure he he surrounded himself with 
pillars of society. So he would have had a lot of priests who were friends, um, a lot of people who were respected but also feared in society to a degree. Um, he would have also um, be, been seen as generous. He used to get big, huge bags of toys and bring them down to local orphanages and schools. Um, he was he was very well liked. You know, there was nothing to kind of suggest that this is what he was doing because even when it came to uh, abusing kids, when you put into context where the studios were based initially in Inchicore, it was a very suburban area. It was a housing area. You know, there was there was normal families, families living on both sides of where he was. It wasn't like it was in the city centre where you'd kind of say, why are all these kids roaming around the radio station? They just happened to live close by. So it wasn't... And he was also a family man himself. He was a family man too, yeah. So um, so where did he come out of and how did he get involved in pirate radio? It's a very weird story actually because he's, he's a trained electrician. So he had no interest in radio. And from anyone who I've spoken to, he never showed an ounce of interest in radio. It was only when um, the owner of Radio Dublin at the time came into him. He, he used to own a it was like a TV repair shop and he came in a guy called Don Moore to ask my radio transmitter is broken would you be able to have a look at it and perhaps fix it Cook had never seen anything like this but he kind of made it his challenge to try and fix it up and from there himself and Don Moore became acquaintances and that's how he kind of finally got into Radio Dublin then and went on to take it over but um, like it was a very popular show, but he, I think he thrived on the... Was the show called The Cookie Monster, no? No, it no. would have been Cook's Address. He used to kind of, he had this uh, narcissistic kind of per- personality where he even at the end of his radio show, even though he, the kids had no interest in hearing what his opinion was, they just wanted to listen to the music. He felt the need to tell them, you know, to force his thoughts on them at the end of each radio show. By calling it, it was the, it was the, um, I think it was called the Cook's Address or something along those lines. But yeah, he, he basically would kind of... Address the nation yeah, on whatever subject yeah, mattered. whatever yeah. mattered to him. You know, he felt this air of importance that he needed to, that he felt people would want to listen to. And presumably if you run a pirate radio station or back then, if you did, it would have been an interesting place for kids. They'd have been in Very and out. Very interesting. Like he, you know, when you think about it, it was... Um, it was exciting. It was like, um, be like kids now watching a movie being made. It's, uh, you know, all electronic equipment, you know, to see how it all operated. Mm. There was constantly kids coming and going from the house. And mm. not just that, they used to knock on the door to see if the presenters would, would like anything from the local shop and they'd run to the shop and they'd get to keep the change kind of thing. So there was, there was, there was always kind of kids coming and going from it. Um, but it, it never raised suspicions kind of until... I think it was 1978 when one of his victims, uh, Siobhan Kennedy McGuinness, when she kind of told a friend, you know, that he'd been saying inappropriate things to her. And this got back to one of the members of staff who was quite shocked by it, but said, look, we need to look into this further to see if there's any truth in it. Um, And Cook happened to be away in Spain at the time. So a few of the staff members kind of cleared the house and looked through drawers and whatnot. And they discovered Polaroid pictures of kids in their underwear. Now, again, Cook was very smart. There was no pictures of naked children. It was just enough to raise suspicion, but where he wouldn't be, if the guards were to get hold of them, 
he wouldn't have been able to be charged with it. Mm. You know, so he's very smart individual. In that and sense. what happened after she raised those concerns? The, the staff, I think, rounded on him and. Yeah, it was called a mutiny uh, at Radio Dublin. Basically, they kind of met him when he came back from Spain and said, look, um, we're leaving and we've closed the radio station down. You know, and he, he went absolutely ape. Couldn't believe that this had happened. Um, he even went, he had the audacity to even go back on the radio a couple of days after and say, look, this is what they're claiming I've done. Like, how can a man... Um, come out and say that he didn't do this. Like, these guys are saying I'm guilty. It's very hard to defend myself. He had the audacity to kind of throw it out there mm. so that people could make up their own judgments. But he was pushing it on them that, look, there's no way I, I could have done this. There's no way, you know. And uh, it was it was, it was was one of those things that kind so he of... he brazened it out nearly. Yeah, he brazened it out. He made a public knowledge, you know. He was, he was kind of nearly shown, look, I've nothing to hide, mm. even though he obviously did. But and was, nothing happened to him? No, it kind of... That kind of that kind of went, you know. I think about twenty staff members went over to a rival radio station at the time. But what he done was he got new staff members in and just started again. And at this point, did he move? He moved uh, not too far away to another station in Inchicore. Okay, where he stayed for I think a good few years after that. Then, so where would he have been the year that Philip? Kearns he would have been in Inchicore. But he, he also had access that I've discovered to a property in Tala, which wouldn't have been too far away from Raffarnham at the time. Mm. Um, he was also, from talking to one of his victims as well, his MO was where he used one child to, to, to lure another. So there's every chance that he may have, um, you know, been out and about. And I suppose any young teenager, you know, if they saw another child in the car, it might kind mm-hmm. of act as kind of, you know, well, there's nothing to fear here. Now, in 2010, he was convicted before the courts after two of his victims gave evidence. He had previously been tried and the trial collapsed. Trial collapsed, yeah. So, um, yeah, he ended up getting 10 years then. Um, and it was and the two victims were, were females. Two females. Yeah, but that's the big misconception, mm. you know, that he was only interested in females. From anybody who I've spoken to, um, from victim to his own daughter, Nikita Cook, there was no child that was off limits. He was a prolific paedophile and any child that would literally come within a foot of him, he would try and abuse. Mm. There was no child, no age. He didn't have a preference. He just abused kids and that that was his his thing. He just went from one child to the other as, as one person described it, which is very sad. You know, it was like passing the parcel. It was mm. like one child to the next. And as is often the case, you know, they will be only convicted on a tiny proportion of their crimes because lots of victims can never and will never come well, the forward. Amount of lo- the amount of lives he's destroyed um, in Inchicore alone, you know, where the radio station was, I've heard of so many. And it's just heartbreaking because a lot of these people haven't spoken out either. Mm-hmm. And they've carried this around with them for so many years and... Unfortunately, he was only charged for two of them, you know, where, as one victim says, she wouldn't be surprised if it went up into the hundreds. Mm. You know, she knows alone of about 40 to 60 in her local area that he abused. So bring us back to 2016 and and tell us exactly what happened there that started to link him to the Philip Kearns case. Yeah, so the first kind of link or the first time his name was brought into the whole equation was... 
one of his former victims came forward claiming that she had witnessed Cook in the studio in Inchicore hitting Philip over the head with a blunt instrument. And she can't recall what happened after that, but it was enough to merit detectives going to investigate Cook further and to interview him. Um, When they actually went to interview him at Arbor Hill Prison, which, you know, as you know, it's it's full of some of the country's most heinous criminals, um, they discovered that he'd actually been transferred to St. Francis Hospice, um, where he was dying of lung cancer. He only had a couple of days to live. So it was very much a kind of uh, a race against time for the detectives involved in the case to see if they could get as much out of him as possible. Um, so they, they interviewed him twice in the hospice. Um, one of the detectives or former detectives who I spoke to who would have interviewed him, a former uh, detective sergeant, Tom Doyle, kind of recalled to me the how sinister and how chilling the encounters with him were. Um, he was. A, they asked him mostly yes and no questions because his breathing was quite bad. And he had, there was a duty of care, so there was a nurse present at all times. But there was one question which they asked him, uh, which was an open-ended question. So they didn't kind of try and prompt him with any information. And what he came back with was enough to merit that the two detectives that were sitting there at the bedside believed that there and then he was going to actually reveal uh, what, he, what, what he knew about Philip. They were that convinced that he was going to confess now, whether it was to confess that he was involved or that someone else was involved, they they merited it enough to think that he was there on the day. Like what he actually said as well, totally uh, lined up with what the nine-year-old victim who'd come forward in 2016 said. She was only nine at the time. So what must be remembered as well, like a lot of people in 2016 were saying, I can't believe this woman hasn't come forward before. You should remember this guy was an extremely, extremely dangerous individual. He showed numerous acts of violence over the years. Uh, he petrol bombed the house of someone because this person was seen with a, a female who he happened to uh, be attracted to. Um, like he was just so, um, and even like he frightened of, people. Yeah, like even some of his former staff members. Like I talked to a guy called James Dillon when I was writing the book, and he said that when he first approached him over the allegations of abuse. Cook turned around to him and said, you know, you're going to end up six feet under. And he said, are you are you threatening me? And he quickly turned and said, no, no, I'm just saying if you continue, you know, worrying about things that don't concern you, you'll worry yourself into an early grave. He was very, very quick to, he was very, highly intelligent, highly intelligent. Um, was very cunning and sly. Files are. Yeah, very cunning and sly. But, you know, when, when he was interviewed on his deathbed, he coincided a lot of the information which this woman had given. And you have to take into context, well, this woman wasn't out for revenge. Despite her being a victim and being abused by this guy, she actually forgave him. She had found religion through a family member and had actually forgiven him. So it wasn't like she was out for revenge Mm. or out for, there was a vendetta. It was simply she wanted to try and get the truth. So do you feel that this woman probably knew that he was dying and that he could never be a danger to her again and felt that that was the time to I'm come not forward? Sure. Or? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I suppose it's very possible. Um, you know, anyone who I've spoken to, a lot of them were very fearful of speaking out against him until mm. he died. And look, anybody who has been abused as a child is so damaged, you know, for them to 
they carry it with them their whole life. Like I, I can't imagine what it would be like, but from talking to people who've gone through it, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, it's, it's kind of formed their life up to the present day, you know, and um, I, I, I honestly, from anyone who I've spoken to, this woman was extremely credible, extremely credible, um, had no vendetta, as I said earlier. And I believe she was just trying to help the investigation team. She wanted to help as much as she could. Um, and, you know, after interviewing them, they actually concluded that, you know, this woman, a lot of the details she's given, mm-hmm. he's confirmed. And so Cook died before anybody could get to the bottom of these allegations, whether they were true or false. But I think as part of your investigations for your book, you have pulled together some threads, circumstantial evidence. I mean, I think from reading your book, he's the man. Yeah, like it's, it's weird because I went in with a very open mind because I suppose the one thing I wanted to do with this book was go in with a, a blank canvas. I didn't want to go in with any preconceived ideas of who I thought may have carried it out or who may have been involved. I wanted to go in completely blank canvas. Um, and I suppose with Cook, I was I, I, I would have wrote about him in the Irish Sunday Mayor at the time, but I would have, I kind of, would have been 50-50 on the fence whether he was involved. But I suppose after I delved into him as a character and as a person, it kept stacking up against him. There was, um, so there was the interviews, obviously the deathbed interviews, which, you know, coincided with what this woman had said. Um, I also came across uh, documents, which he wrote in 2001. So it would have been 15 years after Philip disappeared and 15 years before he became a suspect. And in them, he claimed that he owned radio transmitters in the Dublin mountains and that a day after Philip disappeared, that he discovered track marks in land that he owned in the area and that he had reported them to the guards. But the guards never followed up on it. So does he mention Philip Kearns in these documents? He mentions Philip Kearns in this document, which has no relevance to Philip whatsoever. So it's basically him telling his life story from from being a child all the way up until... Uh, the present day up until 2001 at the time. But for some reason, he felt the need to throw this reference to Philip Kearns in. Which would have meant nothing, as you say, at the time. It had no relevance, but Mm. like the fact he even said, you know, he went so far as to say he spent a whole year searching the Dublin mountains for this this boy who was was supposedly unknown to him. It's, It's just for me, something doesn't sit well with it. Um, and I certainly think, you know, Cook was the type that he used to antagonise authorities. Um, he, even with the pirate, pirate radio station, he, he had his own Garda ID on the radio, on the system, who's known as Alpha 7. And he used to turn up at crime scenes and claim that he was a member of the media, so he was entitled to be there. It was just out of pure, he had this kind of ghoulish fascination, you know, where often, like a few of the detectives that I spoke to, he'd often turn up at the crime scene before they'd even get there. He was there. a pest. He I was think a they pest. They, they hated him. Mm. You know, he just caused uh, trouble when he turned up. But um, yeah, it's 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 the the reference to Philip in the in the documents that I have. It's um, there's also a few names that are mentioned within it in that context in in regards to Philip you know, very close to it in the document, who I believe they may be able to let the guards know perhaps what he was up to at the time or be able Other to... Other people they, he's they, described in these documents that are still alive today. and they would, Yeah, mm. they would have been juveniles at the time. Um, now, they might be innocently mentioned, 
Um, there's always that. But I've passed the, their names on to investigating officers with the hope that, you know, they may they may be able to either rule him in or rule him out of the investigation. And are these track marks he discusses after the day after Philip? Yeah, he, Is this up at this place he has up in... Step aside. This place with the, the bunker? I think it's buried. the same place... Well, it can be only guessed that it's the same place where he had the 20-foot bunker underneath the ground. Have you been up there? No. <laughs> oh, my God. I have. It is so no. weird. It was really freaky. Um, it's this field and, you know, you'd wonder why anybody would have wanted it because there's no way you'd get planning on it, I imagine, for a house. It'd be beautiful if you did. It's looking down over Dublin. I think he had a big radio transmitter thing, a signal thing on it. I think that's why he bought it, so as he could broadcast his radio station. But uh, around the time in 2016 when this came up or he came up as a suspect, I was up there with somebody who knew him. And yeah, it's he had buried a container under the ground and there was a slide into it, into it yeah. that you could get into from... The land. I mean, you wouldn't have a clue this container was there, obviously. Sure, even the land. I've, I've been up that way a few times and to the normal eye, you'd never even know never it existed. Clue. But he, yeah. what was strange about it as well is that he'd actually uh, used a, there was an electric, electricity pole beside it and he'd actually run the electricity because he was a very talented electrician, had been able to rob some of this electricity wire and run it into the container. So he had his own electricity supply even in it. And there was a, a swing from one of the trees where the, he used to bring the family up for the day and they the kids would play in this field and swing and whatever was going on in this underground steel container was anybody's guess. Yeah, like it's, now, they it's, did search it, I think. Yeah, but you see, I think like I, I was, for the book, I spoke to a, a renowned Crim, criminal psychologist by the name of Dr. Julian Boone, who's based in the UK. And he would have worked on a lot of high profile cases in the UK. So the Harold Shipman case and the likes. And his primary uh, profession is to go around the prisons and interview serial killers, murders, you know, multiple offenders. And when I sent him this file on Cook and on the case, um, he was baffled as to why Cook wasn't looked into further. He said he had every telltale sign as someone who would be more than capable of carrying out an abduction and uh, suspected murder, you know. But he, he questioned why why any normal man or any normal person would have a 20-foot container under the ground. He said, for him anyway, he said his advice would be that the guards need to go up with the most up-to-date forensic technology and really examine this underground, what he called a bunker, really. Mm -hmm. It's not really a container, it's more of a bunker. Like, what was he hiding in there? I know it was searched a few times and there was nothing in it, but... Well, I think there was supposed to be reels of... I think at one stage I heard that there was Polaroid photos of children in their underwear, which coincided with the whole images which had been discovered in the late Chico 70s. Yeah, in the mm. late 70s. But you see, in between him being in prison for the sexual assaults and the case being dropped and then him being tried again, he had the time outside of prison because he was released to go and if he if he thought for a second that there might have been a bit of heat on him to remove anything which was in this container also but again he mightn't have been smart enough to forensically clean clean out the container so there may according to this uh, Dr. Julian Boone be enough 
that they could actually go in and properly forensically examine it. You'd wonder, have we just scratched the surface with Cook and you know, all that was it's, going yeah, on? Yeah, it's, it actually, he's such a complex character, you know, and I think even his daughter, you know, I don't think she could even fully figure him out. Like she, she said. That she he, spoke to you for the book, Nikita. Yeah, Nikita, lovely girl. Um, but she would have been one of the, the last people to see him alive. She was in the hospice with him. And I suppose her story was that she was in care as a child, so she didn't really get to know him. And at the age of 18, she decided, I need to figure out if this man is the monster that everybody's making out. You know, she well believed what was being claimed in the papers and on the internet, but she wanted to see for herself who this guy was. And by all means, she says he was a monster, you know, and she she did put it to him about um, being a paedophile and abusing all these kids and he wouldn't answer on any of them. So she said, like, you know, if you can't even tell a family member, you're never going to get the full truth out of this guy, you mm. know. But far from painting him as a doting father, she she said, no, look, he was a monster, but I had to see that for myself. Mm. You know, I had to figure that one out for myself. But um, yeah, very, very complex character. But I think personally, you know, I know his DNA was checked at the time and the single profiles of the DNA didn't match those on the bag. Not sure about the mixed DNA now, but I still think there's enough to merit the guards looking into him further. Like there was well, other if that bag was floating around a cupboard in Ratfarnham yeah. Garden Station all those years. It sounds as if it's been it's being touched a lot, damaged but, uh, beyond. You know, there's there's maybe other uh, areas that could be searched though for. Yeah, like there was a lot of circumstantial evidence against him as well, like that he he had access to a car, a red wine, whiny colour car at the time. He used to buy and sell cars. That was his kind of side business. And one of the cars that was identified as being in the area at the time that Philip disappeared was this ready kind of wine colour car that was obstructing traffic on the day. And I suppose the reason it stood out was there was a, a, a local who was on his way to the airport. He was flying out to go on holidays. And he was delayed because this car was holding up traffic. But what he witnessed on the day was that there was a teenage boy with a cloche de Aina uniform leaning into the passenger window of the car. So he wrote down the registration plate, more so to kind of report it to the guards, you know, for obstructing traffic uh, when he got back from his holidays. But when he got back, um, unbeknownst to him, his wife had actually cleaned out the car and had thrown the scrap of paper out. But he did describe the man who was driving that car from what he could recall as being a man in his 50s and with grey sticky out, kind of sticky up hair, which would have fit Cook's profile completely at the time. Cook always kind of appeared to look older than he was. He always had this kind of dowdy. He was uh, dirty looking. Oh, he was like from from what I've heard, like actually in his own documents, he says he didn't have a bath. He sponged, he, he just sponge washed himself and he used to let his fingernails grow, go long. And, you know, anyone that I, I talked to who knew him, you know, said that his shirts had like this dirty ring of, you know, grease nearly around the collar. And he changed He never smoked. changed them. Mm. And then he used to, yeah, he used to chain smoke and he didn't even use an ashtray. He just let it fall all over his jumper. So you can only imagine, you know, he actually was the epitome of this dirty man, you mm -hmm. know. He, um, and a hoarder. Hoarder. He never got rid of anything. So like even in the studio in Inchicore, he had old TVs, telephones, which again appealed to the young kids because telephones and 
uh, TVs were were not commonplace, you know. Mm. So to them, this was like amazing. And and Emma, was there any? Did you find any links between himself and Savile? Did they know one another? Did he? Yeah. The, the interesting thing is that uh, Savile used to come over every year to take part in charity walks um, and to visit various hospitals and hospices. And there, is, there are claims that he actually used to, um, he visited the Radio Dublin station at one stage because he was getting adverts for the, the charity walk run on the station. So there is a lot of talk that their paths would have crossed at one stage or another. Now, whether it was innocently or not, mm. or whether they actually knew of each other's backgrounds, I don't know. They always say that paedophiles know of one another they know they can tell when they meet yeah um, and they're drawn to one another that's why a lot of them can work together or can you know whatever they do but um, look The Boy Who Never Came Home a fascinating read um, an amazing story and one which sadly doesn't have a final chapter yeah look I suppose the reason for me writing the book was I wanted to try and like there there was no stone that I left unturned. I literally went down every avenue. I became an expert nearly in in the case, and uh, you know I spoke to so many people about it. I suppose my my aim was to try and find out as much as I possibly could, and I do believe that some of the information that I've gathered during the course of writing the book, I do believe it could greatly help inve- investigating officers and. I really hope that it will lead somewhere because as a mother myself, I have a, a young boy. I can't imagine I, I lose sight of my little boy for five minutes and five seconds in the supermarket and I panic, you know, and poor Alice, 35 years later, still doesn't know what happened to her little boy. Mm. And I would just love more than anything for her to get some closure or get some answers. Well, hopefully you have, you've shaken the tree with this book and maybe, you never know, maybe somebody will come forward so Emma McMenemy thank you very much thanks Nicola you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent if you like the podcast and love true crime why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. like to be able to start conversations like a pro take the sunday world your daily dose of what's going on do not consume the sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel you're a politician with something to hide or you've appeared on a reality tv show and care about others opinions consume the sunday world responsibly always read the stories gossip and commentary